Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to the latest episode of Bibliostapes in Discussion. Uh, today, I've got the great pleasure of being joined by Scottish mountain photographer Colin Pryor. Good evening, Colin. Good evening, Ewan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And yourself? Very well, thank you. Very well. Just uh, anticipating the storm that's about to break upon us, Storm yeah. Eunice. Well, that that said, it was was it Dudley yesterday, and I was I was outside today. I nearly got caught up in said weather conditions over in Edinburgh. So I'll be staying firmly indoors. I think that over the rest of the evening and tomorrow to try and avoid these uh, weather conditions. Unfortunately, it's not bringing any snow or cold weather for us, which. Uh, this winter, as we were talking about earlier, has been somewhat of a bit of a disaster from a photographic point of view. Very much. It's been a bit of a non-winter. Yes, too too much of a non-winter, but uh, hey-ho, such is life. Um, so for I'm sure many of you will know Colin and Colin's work, but for those of you who don't, Colin, it'd be great if you could maybe give us a good introduction to your, your photographic journey. Well, it's, uh, it's spanned almost 40 years now, unbelievably, and... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm known as a, as, a, as a landscape photographer, but my career really has been in commercial photography. And um, I was involved uh, in events photography for, for, a, for a long period. And it was really against the success of that business that allowed me the freedom and the money to go and develop my own work. You know, I was working for uh, intense periods of the year and then um, there, were, there were other periods where I wasn't so busy. So it allowed me to, to explore um, the, the Scottish Islands and um, that's where my work developed from. It was a passion for, uh, for the landscape and really it's underpinned by a fascination um, uh, of, of the elements, uh, the, the, the relationship that lies between the elements. And, yeah. um, it's up to us as photographers to capture that in a viewfinder. Yeah, absolutely. And you've uh, you've published several books. One one of the big monstrosities, uh, Scotland's finest landscape, sit behind sits behind me on my bookshelf. It's as we're saying, it's a wonderful bookend as well as being an, a, a wonderful body of work. But uh, it's it's not it's not for someone if you're feeling a bit a uh, bit bit weak to pick up because it is really quite a momentous uh, body of work, but it's an incredible body of work. And it, obviously your recent books, you've had a couple of out, couple out, one cover in Pakistan, which is still on my wish list to get, and your other one, which is Fragile, which is, I think, quite a departure in some elements from what you're maybe known for and your, your normal subject matter. But at the same time, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful study of of bird's eggs. And I'm really interested to know where, where the idea and the passion came from that, because the time you must have spent photographing those eggs would really have to be a, a, a total passion behind that, I think. It, it was. And um, I mean, I was familiar with the, the, the innate beauty of bird's eggs. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at some of the, the eggs in, in the book, it almost looks like um, Aboriginal art or certainly ethnic art, that, you know, that temporal beauty, uh, you know, would, would, um, would have vanished. Um, yes. And, you know, there are collections in um, the Museum of Scotland and, uh, you know, I, I sought permission uh, there to go in and spend quite a bit of time photographing these eggs. And my idea really was driven by just trying to, explore the landscape in a different way rather than just taking um, a selection of disparate images. And I yes. think increasingly with the myriad images that are on the internet and um, on websites, I think it's increasingly more important that work is underpinned by some sort of story. Yeah. So um, I was familiar with, with the eggs and, uh, and also the one thing that I noticed throughout my career, you know, having spent quite a lot of time uh, outdoors, was the the demise of wild birds. Um, it's something that enriches the whole experience of being outdoors, and I kind of felt in many ways that that egg is symbolic of an ecosystem that works. If 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 birds can reproduce an egg in a habitat. Um, then it's it's functioning and they're really a metaphor for a state of the environment 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's such a it's such a subject matter that appeals and people can have such a connection with because there's there so many people who just love the outdoors and you are so used to seeing some of the some of the birds that now we're maybe beginning to see less and less of and the same i suppose goes for all forms of animals and they they are part they make up part of the experience of being outdoors and um, and I, I really like the combination between the eggs and the landscape and i think just the the tonal connection that you've got and just representing where where the animals come from i think it's it just gives it, it was gives, that synergy yes absolutely that it's, synergy between and that and you know the, the choice of landscape uh was driven by the the dominant color of the egg yes. so there were some areas and regions that i had to return to at different times of the year to try and get the habitat that matched matched the egg i knew the potential was there yes but it's that harmony it, it's um it's a kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, the egg gives value to the to the habitat, and the habitat gives um, value to the eggs. I mean, they're diptychs essentially. That's yes. that's what I based it on. Yeah. And the eggs themselves, they they took um, quite um, a, 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 a lot of research to to work out how 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 to photograph them properly. I knew it would be a very hard job. Yeah. Um, uh, simply because you know, I, I, I did, you know, you know, I'd, I'd worked on this project for about ten years, and, and back in the beginning, I remember doing experiments with uh, with hens eggs, and um, you know, with a Hasselblad digital camera and a one twenty mil, and there, there was nothing in focus. You focus on the yeah. top of the egg, and you've got two or three millimeters of depth of field, yes. and then by the time you get to the sort of circumference of the egg, at its widest point. It's completely soft, yeah. And if you if you you know you focus down the egg, you know the top of the eggs then out of focus. Yeah. So I knew there would need to be focused out, but of course that uh, in itself creates a, a huge amount of problems because you need to mount a camera vertically above the eggs, yeah. and you know when you've got a big camera um, vertically ab- above the eggs. You need the, the most sturdiest of tripods to, to hold that up there because the slightest movement is going to give you unsharpness. Yes. Um, you know, between exposures. Yes. So I, I, I was very fortuitous to, to, to meet um, a, a guy called Derek Rattray, who um, I'd, I'd met on, on previously on a, on a workshop and I'd mentioned this to him, you know, about 10 years ago and he said, I've got all that equipment and you can borrow it if you want, but I'd quite like to be involved. So he um, uh, and I spent about six weeks in the museum of Scotland and we, we set up a studio in the museum of Scotland, which was there for two years because we we went back Back in the following year for for about a week to finalize a few things and um, you know without um, Derek's equipment I really wouldn't have been able to photograph the eggs in such a, a precision manner and I certainly couldn't spend I couldn't I couldn't justify the spend on you know the electronic stacking equipment and the flash equipment and you know I've bought some bits and pieces um, that made this work but the lighting was absolutely key and yeah. Um, I had to do, you know, I had to move that studio into my own um, uh, space um, and and prove a lighting uh, technique before yeah. it went to the museum because yeah. I wouldn't have time to experiment over there. You know, yeah. obviously you're dependent on a curator being in in the gallery at that time. Um, I mean, we, we weren't in the public part where there's another part where you know most of the artifacts that uh, the museum of scotland have are stored and there's more security in that building than there is in an airport so <laughs> you can't just breeze in and breeze out yes um and um and that that was it was hugely satisfying and to be able to handle these eggs that um are, have been meticulously collected and documented um, by collectors of the past uh, was was a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine just to see some of the eggs and some some of the patterns on the eggs are they're just sublime and they just look in total total perfection. 
And when you, as you say, when you see that the synergy with the landscape as well, that the egg gives context to the landscape and the landscape gives so much context to the egg. And if you had a book just full of eggs it, or a book full of just the landscapes, there, it, it, wouldn't mean the, it wouldn't mean the same. Whereas it's, it's like, as you say, it's like a story. It's like a journey through the birds of Scotland and, and their, their habitat and, and, what, and what they produced. And it's, it, yeah, it's to, total dedication to, to the subject matter. And it's, it's wonderful because it captures it like a moment in time of all of these eggs and just preserves them for, for generations to actually see the birds that, that lived and breed in Scotland. And the other, the other aspect is, I mean, the, these eggs um, were collected during, most of them were collected during the period when it was legal yes. and it wasn't illegal. Yeah. Um, and the, there's obviously no new eggs in the Museum of, the, of Scotland. I mean, there's, the, there's eggs that are given by um, RSPB wardens that, that are infertile. And yes. so, you know, because they, they, you know, the museums need them for, because they, 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 they're open to people doing research. Yes. So, you know, there obviously are, are very, very few new eggs, but going forward in terms of time, I mean, these eggs are stored in total darkness, but age will fade them. So, um, you know, in many ways, we've got a record of, of, of some of these eggs. And, you know, I, excuse me, I was, I was able to cherry pick um, some of the, the best examples in each species. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. How did you find, obviously the photographing of the eggs had its own challenges in terms of the, the equipment setup, but how, how was the challenge of going out and photographing the landscape side of things to match these, to match the eggs? Well, it, it was quite challenging and, and also quite frustrating at times. Yeah. Um, and, and often, you, you know, you would shoot something and with, with a view to a particular species and you realised it would work better with another egg that you had just with the synergy and because you knew that a bird would would nest and and live in that environment yeah um but it's that seasonal change and and of course it embraces uh, you know all the all the habitats that you would find in scotland and they're so diverse you know you've got sea cliffs you've you've got beaches uh as and, and and then deciduous forests um you've got conifers um You've got mountain moorland, um, you've got water uh, areas, lochs and rivers and so forth. And um, I mean, obviously, I wasn't able to get all of the species in there. And, yes. and, and you know, there's very little wildfowl in there, but most duck's eggs are very similar. They're, they're completely unmarked and they're usually sort of olive buff, um, you know, khaki so there's, there's not really any patterning in them. So I, I didn't really major too much on, on the wildfowl on, on, on that side. And goose eggs, I mean, I've got a grail eggs egg in it, but, you know, they, they just tend to be sort of dirty white, really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see the different shapes and sizes and patterns and colours of, of the, the different species of eggs. And um, I, I just kind of felt that there was a story to be told there. And, and you know, I was great, very, very grateful for Hugh Merrill, who picked the book up and who, who published it. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to have that in my bookshelf now because, as you said, it, it's a slight diversion from me away from mainstream landscape. Yeah, well, that, that said, it is, it's, it's not what um, I think most, certainly photographers who know your work, your work would, uh, would would associate it with um, certainly not the the egg aspect of it, but certainly from the people I've spoken to about it, many many rate it exceptionally highly in terms of just such such an incredible body of work. Well, I'm and, delighted to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's it's I don't shoot wildlife myself, but I, I think it's a fantastic fantastic book. And I, as you say, the the patterns I could spend just days and hours looking at looking at the eggs themselves because they're such beautiful objects. And as you say, the, the challenge of getting them all pin sharp 
it's certainly worth it as opposed to having a uh, wee bits that are out of focus and um, yeah a lot of work has obviously gone into it and and how how important was it in terms of the structure because I know it's it's broken down into different uh, different sections by by areas which I think worked particularly well yeah I, I, I mean I've created different habitats but I think I think with any book regardless of uh, you know, if you take a landscape book, I'm talking about photographic illustrated books here, um, regardless of, of, of um, how, you know, great the landscapes are, I think it's important when you turn the page that, if, that you need um, to change the pace. Yeah. And I think, I mean, normally in books, I, I use, and generally use an image within the landscape uh, to break that up because you interact with that photograph differently. Um, you know, there's a different mapping and you get the, the viewer then gets an opportunity to take a journey into the landscape. Now, they might not be too interested in images like that as standalone images, but if they're used in the right context, they yes. add value and they break the mapping up and then you're on to the next page and you're back into view, essentially. Yes. Um, and uh, you'll see in Fragile that there, there's, there's a chapter um, in, in each of the chapters, there's a, a double page spread that features um, a, a landscape with a bird in it. There might be one or two birds in it. I mean, I realised that, you, you know, to photograph birds, it's a, a, as you're well aware, it's a totally different approach from trying to photograph landscape. And I knew I couldn't do both because... You know, trying to get creative images of all those species of birds, you'd, you'd be working for another 15 years on it. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, it, I've used a double page spread and I've also used a, a, a quote that I found that I felt was relevant. And again, these are just to try and help break up the, 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 the pages. Um, yes. And I would alternate different eggs, um, you know, the eggs in the right page in one spread and when you, you go across, it's in the left. And, and obviously I would break up chapters using different coloured eggs, different shaped eggs, and of course, different coloured landscapes. I don't want three autumnal shots together. Um, and it's just to get that variety so that every time you turn that page, you're getting a little surprise, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, and, and it creates it creates the continuous engagement as well with it. Indeed, it's your 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 eyes are immediately opened and you're stopping at something that, that looks different, feels different from from the egg and the, and the landscape that you've seen before. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge and it's a challenging body to to sequence something, particularly when there are, when there are so many shots and there is there's such variation between all of your eggs and between. Um, and between the landscapes as well, um, and as you as you say, it's uh, it it must it must have been a good experience to actually have to work and and work out which way the which way the best way is to to kind of present the work throughout the throughout the entire book. I mean that that evolved as the project developed. You know, as you brought yeah. new landscapes in, you might move pages around in different places just so that synergy was working in the best way that it could. But it was quite rewarding for me just to do, uh, to work in a project that that wasn't solely based on a sunrise or sunset because, yes. you know, a lot of the, the images in Scotland's finest landscapes, um, it, you know, that, that, that approach really was, was kind of, I mean, I, I've described it before as a bit of a military strike. You know, I would go out and do reconnaissance work, which is the important part. You know, I would yes. obviously try and go out and be successful. Um, but, you know, more often than not, it didn't happen. Yeah. But you'd worked out where your firing point was and yes. you, you, you knew what time of the year you wanted to be there optimally. And, and then it was a question simply of returning, making sure that your kit was all packed and, you know, so, so when yeah. the weather... Um, I mean, I, I still work this way, but, you know, if I decided I was going somewhere tomorrow, I don't need to check what's in my bags. Yeah. I know what's in them. I've already checked. Yeah, that's um, it. And I just need to lift the bags and throw them in a the car. And then you'd obviously be up a hill and it'd take you three or four hours. Um, uh, and sometimes you would camp. Other times you wouldn't. I mean, 
if you could avoid Camden, you would <laughs> give it up for Sunbirds <laughs> just because of the weight. But yeah. that, so, so that, that, um, that, I mean, that, that worked um, very successfully for that type of photography and that genre of photography. But increasingly, actually, with the weather, you know, the changes we've seen in the weather over the last 10 or 15 years, it's kind of less effective. You know, we're not quite getting the same sort of weather stability that we used to get, particularly this time of the year. Yes. The, the, we got, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it's, it's, a, lot, um, it's a lot less stable. Yeah, yeah. Weather has changed very much, and I think noticeably much so is that winter now seems to be getting later and later into into the, the December or January, February, if at all we actually get winter. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. it's not been particularly great, and uh, uh, hopefully, it, hopefully, it rectifies itself soon when we get some nice wintry conditions as opposed to windy conditions that we've had. Um, but yeah, so obviously, fragile is is one path off from your normal beaten track, so to speak. But you also brought out um, your book from all your journeys to Pakistan. Now, I. As I said, it's still on my wish list, but I have seen you, had the pleasure of seeing you talk about this this work on a couple of occasions, and and it is it's it's breathtaking. But I'm I'm, I'm interested just to know where where the where the interest and the inspiration came for for that project out in the Karakoram. Well, I'm 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 going to talk a, a little about the books that yes. I like. Um, the yep. one of the the uh, the inspiration initially for the Karakoram came from a book by Galen Rowell, uh, right. the, the photographer and author and climber, Galen Rowell. Yeah. Um, and it was called In the Throne Room of the Mountain Gods. And it was really before I started taking landscape photographs. I was, as, as, a, as a recreational photographer, I was, I was photographing underwater. And, um, and I picked this book up in my local library. Um, it was published in 1977 by the Sierra Club. And if you looked at it now, you would think, well, it's, you know, that's not great. But, you know, back in, in the early 80s, uh, the, the reproduction quality of lithographic printing wasn't great, uh, particularly from 35 mil images. And, yes. you know, people kind of tend to forget this. And that's why, of course, photographers like myself um, started to use uh, medium and large format cameras because, you know, you know, people like myself and Joe Cornish independently came to the decision that the images published from large format images um, had uh, could communicate subliminally better with you in, in print because, you know, the ultimate was to get into, into print and into books. And, you know, back when I was up and coming, you know, photographers like Charlie Wheat, uh, and myself to extent, um, you know, we, we earned our strikes by the number of books yeah. that you had published, not that you published yourself, because it was a, you know, it was a validation that your work was commercially viable. If a publisher was going to spend, you know, tens of thousands of pounds uh, on yeah. the design and the production of a book, knowing that he could put it into the to, into the marketplace and make a profit, which is all the publisher yeah. was interested in at the end of the day, and and that, that's, that's how, you know, we in our generation were, were kind of recognised by, by, by books, yes. uh, you know, with status, really. Um, yeah. And it still is. I, I, you know, the, the sad thing is it's far more difficult now for up-and-coming photographers to, to get published because publishers are being very, very careful uh, about where they spend their money. And if you look at the big international publishers, it's usually big, big names that they're publishing. Um, uh, you know, and, and they're looking for fine art. Um, they're looking at for photographers that are that have got gallery representation, so that there's another outlet for the books that's not dependent on the, the few number of bookshops that are around now. Yes. Um, and you know, it's Amazon and a few bookshops and and Waterstones, of course are less inclined to stock illustrated books because they know most of them are coming through Amazon anyway. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, at £15 cheaper or yeah. £10 cheaper, unfortunately. And as much as we all love bookshops, uh, you know, we all like cheaper books. We all like And, um, you know, it's a bit of a dichotomy, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so, um, 
So going back to your question about the, the, the Karakoram, it was really that one book. And, you know, it, 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 I, you know I think that that's a, 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 such an important message about the strength of, of, of not one book, but it, there was one or two pictures in that book that really captured my imagination. One image of the Triangle Towers, that was a double-page spread. And as I say, the reproduction of it wasn't fantastic by any manner of means. Um, but I thought, what sort of landscape, what sort of environment is this? And I knew that my destiny uh, lay there. And, and um, about, you know, once I kind of started shooting landscape photographs with a, initially a, a Nikon um, before I, I got into the panoramic um, camera uh, or format, um, uh, Galen then published another book called Mountain Light, which I'm sure many photographers are, are familiar with. And um, that really was a, a big catalyst for my career because I, I realised that what he captured in Mountain Light, um, uh, the, just the, 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 the light in the mountains, you know, I thought if he's done that in different parts of the world because the book features his, his international work, yeah. Um, I thought I can do this in Scotland and I can do it with this wide format. What I didn't realise at the time was, and, uh, you know, as much as, as you know, I acknowledge Galen for, a, for a, a great deal, was that he, you know, and it was against everything that Galen really believed in. Okay. He used filters too much. He, he was an ambassador for a company called Singray Filters. Right, yeah. And he used a pink filter. A, a pink, it was like a chromo filter. It was like a, a yeah. pink graduated filter. And when I look at mountain light, a lot of the photographs that really floated my bow, I can see have got that, that filter on it, which was really, really naughty. But I still have to thank him because at the time, it was that book that, that made me, that convinced me that I could find my voice to photograph Scotland in this exciting new three by one format. So that was where it started. And I never really got out there until uh, I was working with British Airways. I did four years with them photographing their calendars and, and got round uh, over 50 countries in the world over a four year period. And I managed to get out to the Karakora Mountains in 1996. And that was the first time I went there and I went back on a private trip in 2004, and I was still determined to do something there, but life was passing me by. <laughs> and I realized that if I didn't get my act together very, very quickly, and this was in 20, about 2012, that, um, that it wouldn't happen. So I produced a brochure uh, with the help of my designer and I published that, and I, you know, that was printed digitally. And I sent it out to all the outdoor and camera brands and I went to exhibitions to meet them, uh, the, you know, the people, the, the most senior people I could meet. Um, you know, I spoke to the PR and marketing agencies and yeah. um, uh, I managed to get sponsorship from three companies for a four-year period. And they, they gave me enough money between these well, so it was three companies who uh, gave me enough money to, to go to the Karakoram uh, for, well, I, 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 I then managed to find more sponsorship after yeah. that. So I made six expeditions out there, month-long expeditions. And it's, it's very expensive to go there when you're one man and you've got a team of porters for a month. Yes. Um, and you need jeeps and you need logistical support and food and ponies and yeah. lots of things. But it, it, it was a fantastic journey. And I realized what a privilege it was to, to have lived through that period um, and done that. And now, now camera brands wouldn't even consider supporting the efforts of a single, an individual photographer in one of the remote, remotest parts of the world. They, they wouldn't see a return on that. And if, if, they, if, they, if they did, they would be looking for a, a film rather than still images. Yes. And that, that's, the big, that's the big change that's happened. Commercially, brands are looking for moving content rather than stills, which 
you know, from for someone like my from my generation, um, it is you know, it's it's rather sad, but it's it's the marketplace, and the marketplace is king. Um, fortunately, because of where I am in my career, I, you know, I've been able to choose to ignore video. Um, I, you know, and I've no personal interest in shooting a film. I don't mind if someone wants to, you know, film um, documentaries and make documentaries, but I'm going to continue to shoot uh, uh, still images. And and I think, um, you know, for me, that parallel between the still photograph and more conventional forms of art, such as drawing and painting, where the end uh, game is is to get that image in two dimensions. Yes. That was really why I started taking um, making photographs. I was a frustrated artist. <laughs> at school, I was I was quite good at photography, and the reason I know I was quite good at photography because there was someone in my class who was brilliant at photography, <laughs> and I realised that he had a talent that I could. It didn't. It wouldn't matter how much uh, I you know I practiced. Yeah. He had an innate talent which I didn't have, and that's, you know, and, and, and in many ways I kind of discounted pursuing an artistic career, which I may otherwise have done, because I, I just saw that, you know, what a talent this guy had. And, and you know, obviously it was at primary school, and I have no idea where, where that guy is now, but I'd be very surprised if he, if he did anything with that talent. And I, I think, I feel that, you know, as, as someone once said, if God gives you a lemon, you make lemonade. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I, okay, as an artist, it's a, it's a very challenging uh, pursuit, really, to make any money and have a decent standard of living. Yeah. But I hope, you know, he's, he's, he's tapped into that in, in some way. His father had the same talent as well. Right. Okay. And... Um, and so, so you know, I wanted, um, I, you know, and I still want to continue to produce still images. I want to go out there and distill the landscape because, you know, what, what people forget, you know, there's photography more than any other art form tends to be dominated by conversations about equipment, about technique, and not about the artistry of photography. Yeah. And yeah. and that that is, I mean, all all cameras, all brands of cameras, all sensor sizes do exactly the same thing. They look outwardly into the landscape, and they're essentially computers with a lens on them. And whenever you point that camera, they will record exactly what where you point it at. But the only thing that makes a difference is the person on this side of the camera. It's the person that's bringing their life experiences and their vision and their, their, their technical skills into that computer. It's what they input into this side of the camera that makes photographs stand out. The photographer is the instrument, not the camera. Totally, totally agree with you. It is, there's, there's so much around what equipment you're using and what equipment are they using. And if you've got someone who's got a natural talent you should be able to give them any camera or whatever it is, and they will be able to produce beautiful images and beautiful work. I, that, I agree. That, that, that shows that, that shows their emotional connection because it's their emotional connection to the subject matter, landscape, whatever it is that they're photographing. And you give someone a small SLR or a 35 mil or whatever, they will come back with beautiful pictures because, as you say, they've got the eyes and... and They've got the technical now, but they've got the eyes and they've got the vision to see that and capture it that, uh, that it's in an appealing way for everyone else to look at. And I think the other important point as well is it's, it's what you as, as a photographer or an artist have got to say about the world. I mean, I know countless, I've known countless professional photographers who are very skilled, talented people that you know earn a lot of money um, fulfilling their clients' needs, but they don't necessarily have anything to say about the natural world. And unless they've got a commission, they're not really out there working on personal projects. I mean, that's not true of everyone, um, but I've met a lot of those photographers in different, um, yeah. you know, in different areas. And 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 I think the other thing that's worthy of of noting is that. 
although still photography commercially has been eclipsed by video because of its, its ability to communicate online, yep. the human brain is designed to store still images. Yeah. And powerful images go into the brain very, very quickly and are stored there. And importantly, they can be recalled quickly. And if you're a brand, surely that's quite important. Yeah. You know, you can, you can get that recall and you've got the message. Whereas much of moving content flows in one ear and out the other, and very little of it is sticking. And you can sit and watch a movie that you've seen before without realizing and, and, and until a sequence of events triggers um, uh, still stored, one or two stored images in your brain, and you realize that you've wasted another hour of your life watching a movie you've seen before. before. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating way the, the mind and the, the, the mind just works and the brain works in terms of its memory recoil and, and, and things that you can associate stuff with as well. Um, but yeah, obviously you, you've made several trips out to, 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 to photograph six trips, six or seven trips out to photograph it. And that must have been an entirely different challenge from doing likes of your, your photography and landscape work up, up in Scotland. Yeah, very much. Um, and, you know, the military strike doesn't really work there. But I mean, what, what I did do um, on many occasions, you know, I would go back um, I would go back to the same glaciers, um, yes. you know, and I did that, um, you know, twice. I did journeys to, because you're just, there's certain mountains there. And if you've got cloud base down, you're not really getting a shot that stands out. Yeah. And, you know, I think people for years used to say to me, what are you working in Pakistan for? It's dangerous and it's this and it's that. But, you know, other photographers will recognize what I'm going to say here. It wasn't, you know, that it, the, the, there was no real hardship um, for me. It, it was the Karakoram was a state of the imagination. I mean, you, you know, it, 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 and you know, when I was out there, I was totally absorbed in that environment, and I had a lovely team of men that looked after me, and I built relationships up with them, and they taught me a great deal. I mean, the proper. These guys are mountain men, you know, they've been yes. brought up in the mountains. They live at the edge of the Karakoram or in the Karakoram. They're not on the edge, they're in the Karakoram. And they, they understand so much about the mountains. And, and it was a privilege to learn from these men because, you know, what I, I, you know, I, I, I noticed was that the sons are off, you know, doing other things, you know, working in restaurants because they're getting more money and they've got better conditions than having to go out and carry heavy loads. Uh, onto the glaciers and freeze up there because they've got very little in the way of, you know, adequate clothing and, and sleeping bags. And nobody can blame them for that. But, you know, what, what's happening there is that those skills that their fathers have, have developed over a long period, over their lifetimes in the mountains, they've not got, you know, they've not got that uh, innate skill. Um, yeah. And to, to have spent, you know, the time I did out there um, with these men uh, was a great privilege. Yeah, absolutely, and I I love the well. It's a, well, it's, I don't have the book. I've I've seen many of the images, and I love the the black and white photography of it as well. I think it works just so well with the subject matter and the the total contrast between the mountains, the sky, and and just the 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 rock foundation as well. It's a, it kind of really brings a brings a total atmosphere. To, to some to some of the scenes with the jaggy the jaggy sharp points that that you kind of re, uh, remind you of when you ask a child to draw what mountains look like and it's like the sharp triangles and, and that's what that's what the that's what the the mountains really remind me of and take me back to. Well, thank thank you for that. Um, I think um, you know the Karakorams, in my opinion, are the most inspiring mountains uh, in the world and. Yeah. They're, they're composed of uh, gneiss and granites, and they, they're very, very hard rock, and that's why they, they can, they, you know, they kind of um, weather in, in very angular ways. Um, and the other thing, because of the towers and the minarets and the cathedrals that you get there and the spires, um, because of the vertical nature of them, unlike 
the majority of the Himalaya, the greater Karakoram, um, which, which comprise most of these towers, they, 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 they shed the snow. You know, it snows there, obviously, a lot. In yeah. fact, I was looking at a weather forecast today in the Karakoram, and up on the Biafo near Bentabrak, which is the Oga, it's minus 35 today up there, um, and said bitterly cold. The wind's dying off, and I was thinking, God, what's it like up there just now? But really good weather this week there. I thought, God, it would be great to be there. Um, <laughs> but and who knows what it would be like. Um, uh, very challenging, very, very challenging in the glaciers. And, and um, But, you know, I just get so excited uh, when I think about that. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it was that combination of, of spires and towers that really captured my imagination. And just going back to, to what I was saying earlier when we were chatting about Fragile, about using intimate landscape pictures to break the pace up. Yes. Um, I've, I've used, I mean, over my lifetime, I've, I've studied lots of mountain books and they tend to be, very, very similar in terms of the content, you know, particularly when you're in high altitude environments, because you've got big snowy white mountains and blue skies usually. If you're lucky, you know, they're going to shoot when the weather's good. And each time you turn that page, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm not a climber, so a lot of these guys are, and they're up in elevated places, and the views they're getting from these um, tops are fantastic. There's no doubt about that. But you've just got this blue and white, blue and white, blue and white. And I recognise that regardless of how great the views are, you get into this monotony. You know, there might be a climber in red hanging from a rope or a yellow tent. And it's very, very predictable. And I wanted to try and create more of a a sort of art monograph, if you like. And I've used the strongest colour images to break up the black and white. Um, because I think the tonal range that's in the Karakoram lent itself very much to the Karakoram, the, 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 um, the, the, the monochrome lent itself to the, the, yes. the sort of tonal range of the Karakoram mount. And I've also put in portraits of some of the porters, some of them I knew well, other ones not so well. And that was because the Karakoram's a landscape that doesn't have those intimate landscapes. So yes. I needed to find another way to break up the mountain pictures and the only way to do it was to bring in a bit of of human culture into that and I think that's helped break that and that was the intention of doing that it's not because you know I know these well I know I know two or three of them really well and other ones that were just random porters I mean when we were out there with um in 2013 and the BBC were shooting that documentary over the you know the, the course of the month we had about 50 porters and, you know, so, so there was quite a pool of porters that I had access to. And, um, and you know, there, there were some great characters there. So, um, so you know, I, I took that opportunity to, to photograph uh, some of them. Yeah. And as you say, it, it just it shows the importance of sequencing the sequence of a book in terms of, as you say, with Fragile, you've got the different elements that naturally allow for breaking up. And, and create an engagement and in and in, in, in this one you, you're able to use some color images but also images of the people who, who form part to to create the engagement and as you say to to change the speed of the book and and just get people to stop and think and move on as opposed to it just becoming a page turning and it becomes predictable as you say and and it it it, it shows the importance of spending time and understanding how to present the work because not everything's not everything's straightforward and, and, and time does have to be taken to to take take into account these factors. And the, the other the other aspect uh, that I introduced into the book um, was the quotes uh, that I took from some of the very earliest uh, expedition books. Um, uh, Martin Conway was out there in 1892 and he was a real wordsmith, you know, he, he very good at um, writing things where he's using, you know, clever alliteration. And I've used these quotes in there because, you know, one thing I recognised when, when, you know, I came across these quotes, that, you know, that generation of people were able to verbalise what they were saying in a way that, you know, we as, as a race now seem to have lost. 
they, yeah. they, 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 you know, were able to use very intimate language of what they were feeling and, and they were able to express their thoughts in the most prosaic way. And I've used some of the best quotes that uh, I came across as chapter openers. And they, 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 you know, I feel they bring provenance to the book. Um, the Duke of Abruzzi was out there in 1909. That was the next big expedition. And the book was, uh, was actually produced by um, uh, Filippo Filippi, uh, uh, sorry, Filippi Filippo, uh, who was the, do the expedition doctor. And I think it was his sister that, that uh, translated it because they obviously were Italian. And um, the English in it is absolutely immaculate. It's, it's just incredible. And of course, on the Duke's uh, expedition was a photographer called Vittorio Sella. And he was a pioneer of mountain photography, in fact, Ansel Adams uh, wrote a great tribute to him. And that is one of my other books, um, uh, which is called Summit. Uh, it was published, oh, I think, round about 2000 by Aperture. And um, he really, uh, he's, uh, you know, I feel that he, he should be better known, Vittorio Sella, but he had a real talent. And I think his showcase was in the Karakoram Mountains. He had a, a camera made by Dalmier in London um, and it shot 16 by 12 inch glass negatives. You can imagine, that's like a window pane. Yeah. And I suspect that he had mahogany boxes into which these uh, glass negatives would slide into, you know, like the small microscope slides, but on a bigger scale. Real. Yeah. And, you know, some poor Balti porter would need to have, you know, carried that up, you know, with the cameras, others with the cameras, because the camera would have weighed a huge amount, as would the lens. I mean, the lens was like a cannon, not the cannon, the brand, but like a, a cannon. A, a physical cannon, oh, yes. It was huge. And some of the locations that he managed to climb to, there's a prolific climber, Vittorio, unlike myself, um, are really frightening. Um, he was up there and he had these big wooden tripods with a big wooden camera and the 16 by 12 glass plates on it. And it's also the reason why the quality of these images still is so good today because of the sheer physical size of the negatives. Yeah. And um, you can pick that up, um, that, that book, uh, secondhand. It's worthwhile having if you're interested in mountain photography. Uh, by Vittoria Sella, Summit by Aperture. Yeah, sound, sounds a great book. Um, and yeah, I'm always, I'm always on the lookout for, for new books, but also not just buying the books. It's also been exposed to new photographers and people who you've maybe not come across before that might give you inspiration and give you ideas because certainly from one thing I've enjoyed hearing in all the podcasts that I've done, is, is what books and what sort of photography inspires other other people because everyone comes from different perspectives everyone sees things very differently and um, so you've mentioned two fantastic books there Darren Dylan Rowell there's been a few people have mentioned him over the last year and a half and um, so I'm interested to know what of what your other selection of uh, favorite photo books are Colin well as well as these big photographs um what fascinates me also is um what I refer to is intimate landscapes, that the yep. landscapes within, uh, yes. if you like. And they're not macro photographs. They're not, um, this is a lichen and a stone. Uh, yep. they, these types of photographs need to be more than the sort of photograph that you would see, you know, a flower in, or a piece of lichen in the British handbook of, you know, lichens. <laughs> um, it needs to... It, they're essentially landscapes in miniature. Yes. And um, some people aren't interested in this type of photography, but it, it, in many ways, it's a, you know, it's a reduction of the landscape. And, and it, it, if, if you're interested in this, it can engage you for, you know, you might be in a beach or you might be in a forest at the right time of the year. 
Yeah. Three hours can just vanish. Absolutely. And you might come away with a picture. Sometimes you can come away with a real keeper. Yep. That, you know, if you were out trying to shoot the big view where it's overcast, you're going to fail at that. Yeah. So the key is really to sort of change gear, you know, and, and you know, as I've said many times before, it's, it's, you know, there's an analogy with hunting. You're trying to stack the odds in your favour. You know, yes. the, the, you know, if we look at our ancestors, you're not going to find them. Well, you'll find them in August looking for fungi in the forest or in certain areas of, you know, soft fruits in early September. But you're not going to find them there in February because there's yes. nothing to eat there. You're going to find them breaking a hole in the ice and trying to catch some fish because yes. there's a chance that they can eat something there. And we're kind of using that skill set to, to find Images, like you know, we're foraging for for images. We're not after fungi or fish <laughs> or fowl. We're, we're we're using the same skill set yep. to to find images, and that's why um, I think many people find landscape photography so rewarding. They might not be aware of that, but you're kind of using the the, the same innate skill set yep. to, to 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 hunt these images because that's what we're doing. And particularly when you're within the landscape, these photographs don't announce themselves. Yeah. You have to go and hunt for them. Yeah. And the, the, the skill comes down to being able to recognize um, a composition within, you know, a wider, a much, much wider area of chaos. You you can see the graphics that, that, um, that underscore a powerful composition, hopefully. And... I mean, Ansel Adams in, in his book, um, well, in several of his books, he also uh, would occasionally take the intimate photograph. And, um, and you know, I point this out. I've got a, a presentation um, which talks about my own uh, inspiration just in, in the way that you're doing at the moment. And, um, and um, you know, I, I show the images because... Sometimes people aren't really sold on this idea of the intimate landscape, but when I demonstrate that other well-known, very well-known photographers, you know, icons of photography, were using uh, the, the vision to also create these images, um, it often changes a perception of Absolutely. that as a genre. And, you know, I found in some of the workshops, particularly women get really excited about this type of photography more yes. so than I find men do. Men are often sort of, you know, keen just to shoot the view rather the than yes. um, the patterns and the textures. Um, and, um, and talking of the intimate landscape, you know, the photographer that did put that on my, 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 um, on, on my horizon was a Japanese photographer called, um, called Shinzo Maeda. Oh, yeah. And he was a prolific photographer. He published about 17 books. And my favourite book um, is called Kamakoshi, and it's a, a national park in Japan. And um, his book was particularly poignant for me when, it, when it, um, I discovered it, and probably mid-'80s, um, because, you know, back then, as I mentioned, you know, I had Galen Royal's book, and what Galen had, or his publisher had done when, Mountain Light was published. Galen worked in 35 millimeter, and it was the one thing. I mean, I never met Galen, but you know, he was interested in using good lenses and small light cameras. And he often would use a consumer Nikon on on a, a you know a, a pro lens yep. just to keep his weight down because it was climbing. But you know, I recognised the. Um, the value of using a large format camera because when you went to print, you could smell the dampness of the moss, if you like. You know, you could feel the texture of the bark in the tree. And it, it was able to, to, to communicate, and still is able to communicate subtle nuances uh, of the landscape, which you otherwise miss in smaller formats in print. And when, when um, Shinzo Maeda's book came along, he largely used a Hasselblad equipment and the reproduction of the book was very, very good. He also used a, a Linhoff 5.4 in some of the images, but 
there's probably you know 25% shot on 5.4 and 75 75% on um, on Hasselblad. And he also used uh, telephoto lenses with a Hasselblad. Right. And it was unusual to find landscape photographers using tellies. You know, he used occasionally the 500, but, he, he, you know, he would use the, uh, the 250 for, for tele shots um, on foliage. And that, that created for me a lot of inspiration. And I realised that there was a, a, you know, that genre of photography had its place. Yes, and you know I, I still go out and hunt these pictures because it gives me a immense um, enjoyment and satisfaction. And so often you get into an area where you see there's a potential, <laughs> and regardless of how much you hunt there, <laughs> there's not a composition, and you just yes. need to accept that there's not a picture here. Yes, and you know you, you move on. It's yeah. part of it's part of the process of. Of, of seeing, of, of hunting and looking. And, um, and of course, these types of images, I mean, I use tilt and shift lenses for them, but, you know, they, they, they embrace the craft, very much the craft part of photography, which I really enjoy as well. You've got these manual lenses. Yes. And you're able to get a bit more purchase out of front-to-back sharpness with, with the tilt, particularly on the 90 millimeter, which I think is a fantastic lens for that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've all been there whereby you, you spend a couple of hours exploring somewhere that you, you, you desperately know and think that there's a composition, but as you say, you come, you try and, and you, you go back and you, you hope to return another day when maybe conditions are slightly different and, and you, and, and that composition does present itself, but yeah, it, it's great. You can just, while away the hours on in some locations in a small woodland or on a beach with up north with some of the fantastic patterns in the sand and you're just looking for that one wee composition and you know it's there but it but it's the chunk it's the challenge the hunger and the satisfaction when when you find it indeed well when you see it in your computer and as i say to people <laughs> you know you know you've got a screen there check the image before you move the tripod you know, Absolutely. you don't get so many surprises when you go home. Oh, why did I not see that? I why didn't that. I look at that? Yeah. Check your work. Yeah, that's it. So that's another great book. Any more? What, what, what else is on this list? Yeah, the, the, the other book um, that, I, that I pick off my bookshelves quite frequently is a book by um, a, an artist called Gordon Benningfield. And um, my favourite book's called Countryside. And he was a classically trained artist that worked in both watercolour and acrylics. Sometimes he mixed them as well. And he lived in the, you know, the southwest of England, down in the Downs country. And he, he had just the ability to capture the essence of the countryside. He did quite a lot of wildlife studies as well, you know, birds, um, portraits of birds, um, owls, yellowhammers, linnets. Um, he would all, all often, you know, do nests with eggs in them. But he had a beautiful way, his general landscape photographs, usually with just, a, you know, there would be a bird or, or, a, or a fox or some deer or pigeon in the landscape. But he just captured you know, the joy of being in the country um, as an artist, not, not as a photographer. Yep. And, you know, I've taken a lot of inspiration from, from that book. I still do um, because, you know, he, he, you know, he's distilling elements of, of the image and, you know, I feel that it connects very readily with the, the general public. And, and that, that is another message um, because we as photographers are essentially visual communicators. And, you know, we're trying to communicate, well, I'm certainly trying to communicate a message. And if we don't understand the language that the public speak, regardless of, you know, what great photographers we think we may be, we may not be getting that message out there. And there's a fine line that divides creative landscape photography, let's say, um, and 
photographers' photographs. What I refer to as photographers' photographs. Now, we as photographers can look at photographs and we may see the merits in images that are a bit more intimate, for instance, and we can maybe recognise, you know, the technical skill that's gone into the production of that picture. Um, but there's certain subject matter that doesn't elicit response uh, amongst the public, and it's something that fascinates me. And over the years, it's not uncommon for me just to ask, you know, if I've done a presentation on a workshop, for instance, you know, what what was your favourite image there? And it's not through, it's not for narcissism that I'm doing this. It's not to pat myself in the back saying, yeah, I'm really pleased with that picture. It's because I'm interested in what pictures are eliciting a response amongst people. Yeah. And it does, it does tend to vary quite a bit, but I, I'm, I'm always interested in that. And sometimes I'm surprised at certain images, um, the way they're communicating with an individual. Um, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but um, I, I'm, I'm trying to hone my knowledge of, of ways of, of, of speaking to the public. Because, you know, if, if we can't speak to the man and woman in the street, you know, if we, if we can't, you know, if we can't, if they can't get what we are trying to communicate, they can't understand because the picture's too complicated, we're not doing our jobs properly. Yes. So that that's it, you know, and, and the message underlies that, not, not solely for this communication thing, but for all good photography is that the simpler the image is, usually the more powerful it is. Yeah. And as I've said to people for many times, if you think about your personal favourite photographs that you instantly, you know, go to when someone asks you that question, they're always an extremely simple proposition. Yeah. And there's a great tendency amongst many photographers to, to get too much in, to overcomplicate yeah. compositions. Too, too, yeah, too busy a composition, whereas actually the, simp- the simpler, the better, and the clearer that people remember these. Remember these Less things. is more yeah, in every way in photography. Absolutely. Very good. And do you have one final book selection for us? or is, or is... Um, Well, I mentioned Vittoria Seller and yep. um, Benny Fields' Countryside. Um, Galen Rowell's In the Throne Room of the Mountain God. Yes. Uh, sorry, Mountain Gods and uh, Mountain Light. So I think that's... Oh, right. Yes, that was, yeah. There was Mountain Light as well, which was the other so one. I think, yes. I think I've, I've, that, I've, that, that I've picked up five there. And these are books that I pick off my shelves um, on, a, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. And yeah. I think that's the strength of a good book. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also, you know, I mean, I'm you know, very proud of Scotland's finest landscapes, but it weighs over five kilos. <laughs> and um, if there's any criticism that could be levelled at that book, uh, it's the fact that it's not probably as accessible as you would like. You know, if yeah. you're sitting yeah. with a drum and you want to do a bit of armchair strolling in the mountains... Um, you know, it's going to put different, you know, crease marks in your trousers. Yes. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's very few publishers producing books like that, and that was really done at the end of, um, you know, publisher spending, you know, making that sort of investment into book. Now, yes. I know that some photographers are, are, are producing books like that, you know, with fabric covers and boxes. But there's there's a couple of issues there that are, that are a problem. First of all, you can't send the books per post. They've got to go by courier. Indeed. And um, you've got a big problem overseas because the cost of shipping, shipping the books um, uh, is almost as much as the cost of the book itself. Yeah. And there's not a lot of people around that are prepared to pay that sort of money. There's one or two people out there that will do it, but, you know, when, you know, I, I mean, people, I get emails from people asking me to send out to the States. Now, you know, the cost of sending that out there by courier will be more than the book will be. Yes, it's and, fright, frightening. And it's a very, very expensive book. 
yeah, frightening, um, frighten, frightening costs with uh, with shipping these days for, for books, and it it really does bring it down to weight is very critical because particularly if you're sending a, abroad in in particular, the costs just go astronomical once you once you hit certain weight points in Royal Mail, and all of a sudden you go from just normal post to to the courier as you say and it, it becomes uneconomical for the vast majority or un, unviable for the vast majority of people to be buying a book where postage is costing far more than the book actually costs itself very much so that, that's why fragile i mean i think fragile is a great size yes. and the caracorum we i know you've not got that there it's slightly longer but you know going beyond that um becomes harder these sizes yeah yeah yeah, you know, it's a big coffee table book, and you know, um, and because it's not accessible, you're not inclined to pick it up as often as as, as you might. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I think I think those are all valid points, and as you say, I think fragile is fragile is a, a really really nice size. It's something that you can pick up, and as you say, have have your dram with on a on a windswept wet Thursday evening. Um, which I'll maybe go and do shortly. But uh, <laughs> on that note, Colin, I'd really just like to thank you very much for your time this evening. It's, it's been a pleasure and an honour to be able to chat to you about, about your work and about Fragile um, and your journeys into the, into the mountains as well. Um, I'm, it's, it's really been a pleasure. And all I can say is thank, thank you very much for your time. Well, it's been my pleasure. And, and you know, I've had a great journey. Um, and, uh, you know, to have these two books at, you know, the, the, this point in my career yes. has, has been a great privilege. And um, I've still got another book left in me yet. You know, Very I've got good. about mileage left the clock yet, you and good, good stuff. So, um, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear it. Uh, you know, another four years and, and we'll, 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 uh, we'll be there with that. So um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I, that's a great thing about photography. And... I'm as excited and as passionate about photography today as I was when I picked up a camera when I was 23 years old. And um, there's not a lot of people uh, around that, uh, that would say that about their own careers. No, absolutely, and it's it's a great position. Not just in photography. Yeah, but, well, you know, absolutely. In any career, yeah. in any career it's, it's, it, there's not many people in that position, and it's a great thing to be able to say and and still know that you are just as passionate about it uh, about your about the work that you do as you were when you when you started it some nearly forty years ago. I'd quite like to be twenty three again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we all would. I'm sure we all would for a while. But I think. I think you then very quickly realise the negatives of being 23 again that do come. Do come with it. But uh, yeah. it's always nice to dream every once in a while. That that's the thing. But uh, but no. Thank you very much for your time, Colin. And, and I look forward to to your next book in in a few years' time. Thank you.